At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We all have questions, and we're all looking for the answers. But sometimes, navigating the answers to cultural issues through the lens of the gospel can be challenging. Join us for our Asking for a Friend series, where each week we'll answer tough questions and provide you with gospel-centered answers that you can share with a friend. Good to be with you guys in worship. Look forward to continuing to worship together as we hear the gospel. Um, it's my first time being here amongst you all. You guys have a beautiful campus, and uh, so many of you guys have had a gracious spirit towards me and towards my family. Uh, my boys have been to several of the Woodside campuses, and so they've been, uh, you know, judging you guys very strictly. You know, is there hot chocolate? Do they charge for coffee? Is there candy in the administrator's office? These things that are, you know, the, the marks of a healthy church. They are going to be able to tell you guys after uh, this afternoon. I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let Jacob know how you guys did. Um, <clears throat> no, and uh, very appropriately for a guest preacher, we're going to talk about hell this morning. So what else would a guest preacher talk about to a bunch of people he's never met before? Um, no, but it's, um, I do want to share though, before we jump in that uh, my gratitude for uh, Jacob and Alicia, um, I know I can speak for the rest of the campus pastors uh, we all are, are quite close. We meet every other week, so twice a month at least. Our campus pastors are together. Me, Jacob, Jeremy met earlier this week, just the three of us in our hub. And uh, we are all collectively incredibly grateful for Jacob. His heart for the gospel, uh, his mind for scripture and theology is, is truly um, irreplaceable at this point. Uh, so you guys, bless this family. Make them stay. Uh, we cannot afford <laughs> to lose any more campus pastors. I'm dead serious. Um, and, uh, and, and, and they have just been an incredible blessing to us. So thank you guys for, I know you have encouraged them, and, and please continue to do so, so they can um, continue to flourish here uh, for years to come. All right, well, uh, as Jill mentioned this morning, we're in our second week of a series that we've titled Asking for a Friend. Over the last several months, our marketing and communications team uh, sort of scoured the internet, um, asking people from everywhere, uh, non-believers, believers, um, what are different questions you have as it relates to the Christian faith? Uh, they boiled these down to roughly 20 of the most common questions, and then different ones of our campus pastors selected a question uh, to focus on with their different campuses. Um, last week, uh, Pastor Jeremy from the Plymouth campus preached for you guys on the question, is anxiety sin? Uh, a lot of people struggle with anxiety disorders, all of us struggle with anxiety to some degree, and uh, it's a very relevant topic as it relates to Scripture. So Jeremy dove into that one with you guys. Um, right now, Lord willing, Jacob is preaching at the Royal Oak Campus uh, on the question, what does God say about singleness? Uh, we had a, a perhaps surprising amount of people who asked about singleness. You, you may be surprised, but um, Jacob's addressing that question today at Royal Oak and next week for you guys. And uh, this morning, I am uh, looking at the question, how... Could a loving God send someone to hell? How could a loving God send someone to hell? Um, in his book, The Reason for God, uh, church planter and pastor missionary uh, Tim Keller uh, has uh, several of these questions that he answers throughout that book. And one of them is, uh, how could a loving God send someone to hell? Um, and he refers to this 
as, and several others, as a defeater belief, a defeater belief. So uh, Pastor Tim ministered in Manhattan, very secular place, a lot of skeptics towards Christianity, and this is one of the common defeater beliefs, he called them. In other words, people would reason, unbelievers would reason, how can God be loving and send someone to hell? These two things cancel each other out. And the Bible teaches that God is loving, and the Bible teaches that he sends people to hell, therefore the Bible's not true. It's a defeater belief for many people in our world. But as we approach this question this morning, I want us to sort of pull back and question the question. Uh, Why is this question so troubling for so many of us in our culture today? Maybe even for yourself. So perhaps no other teaching in Scripture confronts our contemporary culture more than the doctrine of hell. So in the modern world, we declare statements like, live and let live. You do you. Be yourself. And all of these are slogans that encapsulate the current cultural mindset that sociologists refer to as expressive individualism. So expressive individualism says, You live your life, and I'll live my life. You do you, and I'll be me. Don't let anyone else try to tell you who you are or what to be. Be true to yourself. Find yourself. Follow your heart. That's expressive individualism. And this ideology and experience is most famously expressed in the Disney film Frozen and by its main character, Elsa. So in the first Frozen movie, there's an important turning point kind of scene when Elsa announces that she is going to let it go. She's letting go of the good girl everyone expected her to be. She's turning away, slamming the door, doesn't care what they're going to say, let the storm rage on, the cold never bothered me anyway. And then I think in the most important lines of the song, she says this, quote, It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. So that moment in the film is really Elsa's new birth into the modern autonomous self. She makes this declaration that she will determine who she is. And there's no right or wrong in this process. There's no rules for how she chooses who she will be. This is the sovereign self. She will not conform to what her parents say. She will not conform to what society says. She is her own judge. She is her own rule maker. And the reason that moment in the movie is so powerful is not only because the music is great and the animation is phenomenal, It's also so powerful because the message of the song perfectly captures this widespread, deeply held ideology within our culture, namely expressive individualism. And this is why the doctrine of hell and the biblical teaching of God's judgment lands so awkwardly on modern ears. Now, by contrast, when we talk about God's love, It's much more palatable for modern people. But when we talk about God's judgment and that we will be held accountable to his law, 
and that we don't get to live a consequence-free life of our own choosing, well, that just doesn't fit within the narrative of expressive individualism. When we talk about hell and that we will pay an enormous price for our sin apart from Christ, that just does not square with the fully autonomous sovereign self, a self that makes its own rules for how it wants to live. So hell and God's judgment is often confusing and offensive for many of us. And it's left many of us asking, how can a loving God send someone to hell? Now, by contrast, for many of our friends in the Middle East who are dominated by the religion of Islam, they ask just the opposite question. They're not concerned about how could a loving God send someone to hell. It's obvious to them that God would send people to hell. How could he not send people to hell? Look at our sin. Look at our broken world. Of course, he's going to send people to hell. And that's because they're saturated in a religion that prioritizes God's justice. And so what I'm trying to do is help us to step back and understand that as each of us approaches these questions, as each of us approaches Christianity, we all have presuppositions. We all have biases. None of us are neutral. The question is, are, are we aware of our presuppositions and are we submitting them to Scripture? Or are we trying to be autonomous and answer the questions by our own reason? And what we want to do this morning is try to submit ourselves to Scripture and speak to the culture that we're in as it relates to this important question, how could a loving God send someone to hell? So as I've studied this question, three responses have emerged in my mind, responses that hopefully bring clarity, insight, and nuance to how we think about God and hell. How can a loving God send someone to hell? My first response is that justice demands it. Justice demands it. So let's start off for a moment thinking about the attributes of God. So the attributes of God are God's qualities or His characteristics. And I've mentioned in our current cultural climate that people are prone to emphasize the attribute of God's love. Think about John 3.16. God so loved the world. It's this really famous verse worn on wristbands by athletes. It's uh, placed onto billboards by the interstate. Or you think of the well-known phrase, God is love. That one's from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It's just this succinct, simple statement communicating who God is. God is love. At the same time, and here's where we're trying to communicate with nuance, even though we greatly appreciate the truth that God is love, we must also acknowledge that this verse doesn't say God is only love, as if that were his singular attribute. No, God has many qualities. God has many characteristics. And along with being loving, the scriptures also teach that God is righteous. God is just, and he acts in accordance with his justice. So it seems that often what happens is we isolate and narrowly focus on God's love, neglecting so much else that God says about himself, namely that he is righteous and at times righteously wrathful. Furthermore, I think we can say that if God were not righteously angry at times, then he would not be loving. So one author puts it this way. He says, quote, Loving persons 
are sometimes filled with wrath, not just despite of, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining that person, even they ruining themselves, you get lovingly angry. In other words, love and righteousness don't cancel one another out. In fact, if you say you are loving but don't act in righteousness, you're not really loving. Loving persons, the author says, are sometimes filled with wrath. For example, think about what's happened in our culture over the last five years with the Me Too movement. There has been this sweeping movement to hold accountable and call to justice these numerous powerful men for their sexual transgressions. Politicians, executives, athletes, musicians, military officers, actors, pastors, by the hundreds were exposed for abusing their power and for taking advantage of vulnerable people. And as more and more of these stories have come to the surface, what has been our response? Righteous indignation. Our collective response has forced politicians to step down, corporate executives to be fired, famous actors to get canceled. And I think we can say that it was the loving thing for us to do that as a society and to enforce these changes. It is loving and righteous for us to say we will not tolerate this abuse of power and all transgressors will be punished. So even in our increasingly secular culture, a culture that's committed to moral relativism and expressive individualism, even we can't help ourselves. By holding these perpetrators accountable, we are showing that love and justice can coexist. We're showing that love and justice must coexist. Otherwise, love is not really love if there's no justice. And so it is with God. Yes, God is love, but He is also just, and in His love, He executes justice. In Psalm 145, verse 17, Jill read for us earlier, the writer says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways, and He is kind in all of His works. And that word translated as kind here could also be translated as love or loving kindness. So in the biblical author's mind, there's no contradiction between God's justice and God's love. He is righteous in all his ways, and he is lovingly kind in all of his works. So now at this point, you may be thinking, okay, see, okay CT, I understand God must be loving and righteous, but is hell really necessary? Is hell really an appropriate sentence for God's to hand down? Why does God have to punish sin so severely? Well, think about it like this. Imagine that right now, one of you guys stood up, walked up here to the front of the stage, and punched me in the face. That would be pretty intense, pretty terrible. It would be an awesome preacher story. Um, I do want you to know that you would be on camera. We are live, and it's being recorded. Definitely would be illegal, and you are going to get into some trouble if that happens. Now, also imagine this, a second scenario. Several weeks ago, President Biden was in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania for his granddaughter's graduation. Imagine then 
someone in the service stood up, walked over to the president, and likewise punched him in the face. Well, immediately, that person is going to get destroyed by secret service. They may even get shot, but they certainly are going to get pummeled and dogpiled on. Now, assuming the presidential attacker survives that experience, who do you think is going to get the harsher sentence? The person who punched me or the person who punched the president? Because each attacker did the same thing. They physically assaulted someone through punching them with their fist. It's the same crime. The only difference is the someone who got punched. I got punched, and the president of the United States got punched. And I'm just a dude, but he's the commander-in-chief. He's the leader of the free world. And our legal system intensifies the punishment for an assault upon the president compared to and assault upon me. The legal system provides a weightiness and a significance and a severity to crimes against the president compared to crimes against me. And this is not too different when it comes to God. When we sin against God, we are, as one theologian put it, committing cosmic treason. When we sin against God, we are violating His holiness. We are repudiating His law. We are rejecting His goodness. When we sin against God, it is way more significant than punching me. It is way more significant than punching the president. God is so everlastingly glorious and awesome and wonderful that when we sin against Him, and we each have countless times, when we sin against Him, there are eternal consequences. If you punch me in the face, you may have to pay a fine. If you punch the president, you may have to pay a fine and go to jail. But when we sin against God, the stakes are much, much higher. So I must ask, friend, what is your estimation of your sin? Do you take your sin seriously? Are you humbled before God's holiness and glory? Or do you take your sin lightly? Do you treat it flippantly? Because by only and always focusing on God's love, sometimes we excuse our sin and we give ourselves a pass to do whatever we want, even if it's sinful. But along with being loving, God is also righteous. And as an expression of His love, God acts righteously. And we are going to endure divine scrutiny of His righteous judgment. And so I urge you, let's judge ourselves now. Let's take our sin seriously now. Let's bring our sin to the light now in repentance and humility. Let's acknowledge, church, that our sin is worthy of hell. Our sin violates His eternal holiness and thus is worthy of eternal punishment. So how can a loving God send someone to hell? Well, what we see in this first point is that the question should really be turned on its head. How could a loving God not send someone to hell? Because the loving God is also just, and the someones who are sent to hell have committed terrible crimes against His righteousness. So first, justice demands hell, but secondly, unbelievers choose hell. 
Unbelievers choose hell. So many of us have in our heads this caricature of hell, and it plays out like this. So God, supposedly, gives us a certain amount of time to live our lives, and during this time, we have to make the right choices, we have to do the right things, but then at the end, if we haven't made the right choices, if we haven't done the right things, then God angrily hurls us into hell for eternity to suffer. And as our pitiable souls fall into the hellish abyss, we cry out to God for mercy, but God shouts back at us, ha, 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 you're too late, you had your chance, now you got to suffer forever. But again, this is much more of a caricature than it is the actual truth, because it is just as true that we choose hell as it is that God sends us to hell. So, for example, think about Romans chapter 1. It's this well-known and important chapter from Scripture in which the Apostle Paul is teaching about sin and human depravity. And Paul uses this certain phrase multiple times throughout his discourse. Listen to how he describes our experience of God handing us over into our sin. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, and then verse 28 as well. The Apostle writes, Although humanity knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Therefore, since humanity chose to rebel like this, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, since humanity chose to rebel against God like this, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Then once more in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. So you hear that phrase three different times. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. So this is not God saying, off you go to hell in misery and sin. No, rather, this is God saying, if you want to worship and serve created things, if you want to exchange the truth of God for a lie, if you want to live your life without me bothering you, then hey, I will give you exactly what you want. So oftentimes a similar dynamic plays out when we're young and we're figuring out the way the world works. Our parents try to help us. They try to graciously instruct us. They try to patiently guide us into the good and safe life. They try to lovingly warn us about the dangers of life. Maybe the most common example is when our parents try to teach us about touching a hot stove. For me, it was also a hot iron. I was intrigued by the glowing heat from the oven and also by the steamy, shiny metal on the other side of the iron. Both of them got me, you know. So mom's cooking. The burner is hot. 
and toddler you is mesmerized by the orange glow of the heat. Mom looked at us and she could see it in our eyes. She knew we wanted to touch that thing. So she warns us. She tries to teach us. But we don't want to do things mom's way. We don't want to submit to her authority. We want to do things our own way. We want to rule ourselves. So mom doesn't like put a cage around the oven. She doesn't like tie us down while she's cooking. No, she gives us relatively free range. If we're going to touch it, then we're going to touch it. And in that way, she relatively so gives us over to our own stupidity. And this is very similar to the way God hands us over to our own sinful desires. God doesn't slam our hand down on the oven and force us to burn. No, He says, if you want to touch the hot oven, touch the hot oven. If you want to reject my word, reject my word. If you want to live for yourself, live for yourself. And friends, that's essentially what hell is. Hell is an endless experience of getting exactly what we want. Hell is an endless experience of getting exactly what our selfish desires want apart from God. Hell is forever living by our own word not by God's word. Hell is forever selfishly living for ourselves, not for God. And that is a miserable way to live. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says in his book, The Abolition of Man, quote, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And then there are those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose the latter. So Lewis says, those are our two options. We can say to God, thy will be done. I submit my life to you. I believe in your word. I trust in your son. Or God will say to us, thy will be done. You choose to submit to no one but yourself. You choose to believe in your word over mine. You choose to trust yourself instead of my son. Thy will be done. In other words, Lewis goes on to say, no one in hell doesn't want to be there. No one in hell asks to leave. Those who will suffer in hell don't want God's heaven because that would mean they have to take themselves out of the center of the universe. That would mean they would have to get off the throne of their lives and let God be the Lord of their lives. And that's exactly what the unbeliever refuses to do. Again, Tim Keller writes, quote, Hell is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. And so, Christian, this is a big part of our task in evangelism. This is a big part of our task in communicating the gospel to non-believers. Just as much as we are warning them that God will send them to hell on Judgment Day, we are also trying to open their eyes and help them see that they are already living a hellish life. Unbelievers are already living apart from God's gracious rule. They are already experiencing the painful effects of being handed over to their lust, their greed, their idols. 
One of my seminary professors shared that oftentimes when he's sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, he will ask them what the most important thing in their life is. He'll ask them what the purpose of their life is. And whoever he's talking to would say, advancing my career or growing my family or making enough money to be able to retire early or purchasing a vacation house or whatever. And then after he gave their answer, he would ask them, so how's that working out for you? How's that really working out for you? How's it working out for you to have something else at the center of your life besides God? Is that thing giving you the joy you want? Is that achievement giving you the peace you long for? Is that relationship giving you the security you crave? So you see what my professor was doing. He was trying to get the unbeliever to examine their lives, to reflect on themselves and hopefully start to see they are already living a hellish existence. They are already getting a taste of the emptiness and misery of what hell will be like unless they give their lives to God. And if you are here this morning and you yourself are not a believer in Jesus, then I ask you too those same questions. What's the most important thing to you? What's the thing you worship above all else? What's the thing you most easily give your money to? The thing you most easily give your time and attention to? What's the center of your life? What's the purpose of your life? And how's that working out for you? Does the money really settle your anxieties and give you the peace you long for? Do your relationships in marriage with family really give you the love and connection you want? Does the cottage up north really give you the fulfillment you hoped it would? Well, perhaps the emptiness and unsatisfaction you already feel in this life is a sign of the endless emptiness and satisfaction you will feel in the next life. Friend, if you are already feeling like I was made for more in this life because nothing on, earth, nothing on earth can satisfy me. If you are already feeling those feelings and having those thoughts, perhaps it's a sign for you to lift your eyes off of the things of earth, to lift your eyes off of yourself and turn to the God of heaven in humility and faith. So how can a loving God send someone to hell? Well, again, we're kind of questioning the question. It's just as much that people choose hell that it is that God sends them there. So when it comes to hell, justice demands it, and secondly, unbelievers choose it, and finally, Jesus experienced it. Jesus experienced it. So this is, in a sense, the good news of hell, because here's the truth. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived. Jesus lived a perfectly beautiful, blameless, loving, righteous life, a compelling life of love and sacrifice. And then after living such a gloriously beautiful life, Jesus died the death that you and I deserved 
On the cross, Jesus suffered the curse of sin. On the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken, condemned, and judged. The righteous fury of God's wrath was unleashed against our sin onto Jesus. In other words, on the cross, Jesus experienced hell so that you and I wouldn't have to. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, Jesus himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. Those things that made us worthy of hell, Jesus bore in his body. He carried them up Mount Calvary and was pierced through with our transgressions. And the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming accursed for us. Jesus experienced the curse of sin. On the cross, he experienced the punishment and the curse of hell so that you and I wouldn't have to. So I wonder if you've ever loved someone so much that when this person got sick or when something bad happened to them, you thought to yourself, man, I wish I could trade places with them. I know when my wife was pregnant, she had numerous nights of extreme discomfort, was unable to sleep. And of course, when she went into labor, there was a lot of anguish. And I was, as all fathers are, pretty helpless, mostly a spectator. And I remember thinking that at least for one night, I wish I could trade places with her. I'll take the discomfort, I'll take the sleeplessness so that she won't have to. Maybe you've had a friend, sibling, or a child that you've seen get sick and you've thought to yourself something similar. You love them so much that you would trade your good circumstances for their bad circumstances. You'd trade your health for their sickness. Well, that is exactly what Jesus has done. He traded his fortune for our fate. Jesus has the fortune of perfect righteousness and holiness. And through faith in Jesus, God declares us righteous and his spirit begins to make us holy. And what does Jesus get in return for the gifts he's given to us? He suffered the curse of sin on our behalf. He endured the hell of the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. And so I plead with you, I call on you, trust in Jesus. Trust in the one who died so that you could live. Trust in the one who experienced hell so that you could experience heaven. So how can a loving God send someone to hell? This is a really good question. And it helps us press into scripture. It helps us press into our theology. But when we do so, we see that scripture challenges a lot of our presuppositions. It challenges our presuppositions about ourselves, challenges our presuppositions about God, because the loving God is not only loving, he is also just and righteous. And his love requires that he act in righteousness. And we have violated his law. We've broken his commandments, offending him and hurting ourselves. 
So God's righteousness requires a just sentence. But hell is not merely God's sentence for sinners. It is also the freely chosen fate of all who would experience it. God simply hands us over and says, your will be done. But gratefully now, God is reaching out. He is calling out to us now. He is saying, there is another way. There is a way to truly experience life now and to avoid the experience of hell forever. It is by trusting in Jesus. It is by receiving his grace, by being filled with his life-giving spirit. He traded places with us on the cross, tasting death, experiencing hell, so that we wouldn't have to. And so I appeal to you, give your life to Jesus and begin to experience the joy of heaven. I pray it would be so for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to the gospel together, and I will pray for us. Take a moment of reflection before we pray and sing. Father in heaven, we are gathered this morning in the name of Jesus. We have come here, God, to sing your praise. We have come here to seek you in prayer. We've come here to have conversations that encourage us spiritually. But God, we've also come this morning to sit under your word, for you to speak into our lives. And God, we are humbled as we reflect on your justice as we examine ourselves, we are humbled, God, deeply by the reality of who you are and by the reality of who we are. You are holy, 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 and we are broken sinners in so many ways. And so we come before you humbled. God, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. God, we thank you that he came with mercy in his heart. Thank you that he came with compassion and mercy for the worst sinner he drew near to seek and save. For the ones most worthy of the darkest corner of hell he came to seek and save. So we thank you for the good news. Father, I pray for any here who are affected by an amount of arrogance. I pray for any here who think, my sin's not that bad. Hell, is that really... God, I pray that for any of us here who are touched by that kind of spirit, that you would humble us. I pray that you would open our eyes to the gravity of our sin. I pray that we would, like Isaiah, having seen you respond, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. God, may we be floored by your glory and majesty and beauty. 
just like Isaiah. And so I pray for that kind of experience for any of us here who are affected by a high evaluation of ourselves. Father, at the same time, I pray the opposite. For any of us here who are painfully aware of our sin, I pray for any of us here who are like, oh yeah, my list of sin is long and nasty. And if God has a shred of justice in him, I am for sure going to hell. I pray for any of us in here who, that's our mindset, and we're just suffocating with shame. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak to the furthest reaches of our hearts and announce the gospel truth that there is now and forever no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that we could experience the freedom of knowing you, the freedom of being assured that our home is heaven, that we are worthy even of heaven because of who we are in Jesus. And so secure our identity in him. Help us live in that freedom and joy and hope of being so fully cleansed of anything that would make us worthy of hell. We are your children. You delight in us and you are gonna receive us happily into our eternal home. We long for that day. And until then, we keep on singing and praying and seeking you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.